today we've got on a uh, lit manager and producer who's the founder and CEO of Story Driven. He and his clients have worked with and sold to studios and networks all over town, including Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, Universal, Lionsgate, blah, 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 and more. Um, Peter has produced films for such film luminary filmmakers as Toby Hooper of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Tales from the Crypt, E.L. Katz, uh, whose credits include Swamp Thing and The Haunting of Bly Manor, uh, Adam Wingard, uh, VHS, Blair Witch, Death Note, and most recently, Godzilla vs. Kong. Welcome to the uh, podcast. Uh, Peter Katz, thanks for joining us today, Peter. Thanks for thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's so fun to chat with you. No, it's great. We love having you. Uh, I love your shirt. I was telling you before we started, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, right? I remember yep. back in the day, it's like Dungeons and Dragons was the thing that you, you hid that you did because it was it wasn't as cool, and now it's trendy. Not that you've you've told me that you've been doing it for a long time. So, but it's yeah, uh, yeah. I, I started it way like I, it's like the band. You're like I like the band when they were right, really right before everybody liked them. Like, but now like it's funny. Dungeons and Dragons is now kind of like a thing. We're like, oh, are you gonna? We're we all gonna like we're all gonna hang out like play. But now it's it's super popular, which is great. Like mm -hmm. there's so many opportunities to um, play and it's a great way to make friends. Like Absolutely. it's almost like you go on a big adventure together and you're like, oh my God, we survived this. Right. So it's like, like you might not know somebody, but then if you like, if you're hanging out later, you're like, you have like these memories of running around like in this like other world. So yeah, it's a great play way to like meet people and get to know them and also know their personalities to see, you know, what they do. Right. And you had mentioned earlier, which I hadn't thought of, it's, it definitely helps in terms of, of character development and storytelling, mm -hmm. right? Which is obviously important for writers and filmmakers. Um, Glenn Chusain says, audio and video, good. And uh, Emily Mul Mulvey, uh, hearing and seeing you from Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, wow. Welcome from Cincinnati. Welcome to Cincinnati. Or welcome to Cincinnati. Welcome. Glad to see you from Cincinnati. We can't see. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. welcome, Emily. Um, Glenn Chusain says, Eye of the Beholder. Uh, is, is that the Eye of the Beholder on your shirt? I see a beholder, right? Either. Oh, yeah. There we go. Oh, yeah. Nice. Um, so uh, before we get to audience questions from those in the chat, uh, although if you have a question for Peter, feel free to drop it in the chat and we'll get to it in just a few minutes. I wanted to ask you uh, a few questions that uh, I think either you have a special expertise in or that we get very commonly for lit reps. The first being, um, genre you have worked with some uh very well-known uh, established or in toby's case legendary filmmakers who have worked in genre meaning genre meaning the horror thriller genre and uh probably due to their lower budgets and sort of wide appeal genre tends to be uh, a very uh, i don't want to say common because it's not an easy thing to do but a good pathway to sort of break into the industry what do writers and filmmakers who may love genre films but have never written or made one, what should they know before they begin? Okay, they should love them. It's almost like mm -hmm. if you're making a restaurant, uh, you're like, say you want to be in, in the business of like serving delicious food to a consumer, you should really know what you're making. So if you love, you know, comfort food or Italian, you should just become obsessed with it. You should travel, you know, you should eat food everywhere. You should talk to chefs. You should talk to restaurants. You, you need to turn that into your religion in a way, food. Mm -hmm. Same thing with genre. Like, obviously like some people are like, 
well, genre is hot or this or that. Like genre has always been hot and there's always been a communities that have gotten behind these types of movies. But I think the key is building your vocabulary. And I think the people that I've seen who've been the most successful as writers or directors don't just scratch the, sh- the surface. They don't just go, well, these are like the hot movies that made a lot of money. Like I love A Quiet Place, but A Quiet Place is, is great. Or, you know, there's all these different like big hits is going, what's that movie that's in, from Japan or that film from Italy? Or what's that obscure cult movie? It's like, if you're in competition with other creators, you want to be able to have a better vocabulary than they do because there is a competition. And if you're so specific with your reference that you go, you should see this movie or, you know, this movie, or, you know, this director, or, you know, and also not just on a filmmaking side, comics, novels, who are doing the great genre stuff. And that is the more you build that out, the better. And then the other side of building that vocabulary, which you have to be obsessed like a religion to it, you really need to know practical budget. So if you're going to write to direct a typical budget to get into the game, and don't get me wrong, there's all sorts of variables. You know, you could suddenly get a bigger budget. So I'm just saying my personal experience that my friends in genre or whatever, they get about $100,000. Like $100,000 to me is like an entry level writer director where you're like here. And typically you get maybe 15 days to shoot. That's mm. typical. You have a very short shoot date. So of those variables of budget and time, you might not want 20 locations, okay? Because the problem is you do what you call as a company move. Every time you move, your crew is like, oh my God, we have no time. Now we got to go to the park. Mm-hmm. Now we got to mm-hmm. go to the church. So it's going, can I create something where we hold down the fort in one location, ideally, mm-hmm. limited cast, limited visual effects unless you have a visual effects background and go can i make something that's powerful but at the same time could potentially function as a stage play like can you just lock in a location because if you lock in a location you could hold tone mm-hmm. and you could hold a visual style because then you could actually have time to light it and you have time to work with like an actor so like you have less variables and the thing is you're being judged say like if you are directing it based on how you could hold this tone, mm-hmm. right? How do we make this work in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in 90 minutes or whatever? And if you have that good taste, there's no difference between doing like a $100,000 movie and a $15 million movie. Like, I mean, there's technical stuff, and, but you work with technical collaborators. Your team knows things, but it's your taste. Can you showcase your taste? Then instead of having 10 actors show up and three of them are terrible because the other the three are your like random people you pulled in, you get two really good actors and you write around two really good actors and that's how you do it. So I have a client right now. She wants to direct. She's a great writer. And we're designing this movie that she's going to be able to direct this script. We're developing it for like a hundred thousand dollars. So I'm giving her the way that we could figure that out. So when she gets that opportunity, it looks amazing. And then it does the right thing. The problem is sometimes that people are like, I want to compete with a giant movie. Mm-hmm on the scope and then what happens with that you have cgi helicopters flying around it looks cheap as hell right you're like why didn't you put those helicopters in so the key is going like what is my taste and perspective Mm -hmm. because a movie of a hundred thousand dollars has an advantage over a genre movie with ten million dollars because it has more attitude more perspective uh more specificity based on the person who's behind it 
So that gives you the leg up against these bigger movies that have so many more stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Because traditionally, the bigger the budget, the more decision makers are involved in a project, unless you're very much established as a director. Mm-hmm. But if you get $100,000 from a group of people and, you don't, and they all know what you're doing, you may have more freedom to express yourself in your voice. So that's where you really have that advantage to get mm-hmm. attention. But you don't want to compete on the amount of locations or the amount of visual effects unless you have that background. You want to be able to show what you could do with that budget and design it. Mm-hmm. And don't worry, you can't make a living off $100,000, right? But if you could show people that perspective and it's really unique, there is a community that supports genre films. So if you play at a, a festival, there could be other people that watch it and you could have journalists covering you and the press coverage you get is in genre. There's other films like other genres that you may not get that support. So there's a community, there's journalists, there's fans that will literally be the platform to get your voice out there. And if you show you have a really unique way into storytelling, you could go from the $100,000 to either a big indie film or potentially uh, a studio film. Like the, the range of options are there or even directing TV shows. So I think that like, it is such a great entry point, but I think the problem is people start with a script that doesn't work in a budget and they try to shoehorn all this stuff in. The best way is looking at like a blueprint. I'm designing this thing with 15 days, hypothetically. Mm -hmm. This is the type of crew that I need. I need a very simple crew. How do I design it from the conceptual quality all the way to actually putting it out there where it works in that system? And, And then you're going to be successful. So I think that... People need to think about it from the very beginning. What are we doing here? Do we have the resources? So we're reverse engineering like this almost architecture, this build, and then starting where you want to be. Like we want something that has two characters in a car and go backwards and go, how do we make that? How do we design that? And as you get more successful as a filmmaker, the opportunities will get bigger. You'll suddenly have like, all right, now we have more range of more variables to play with, or you got to remake from a movie that was made uh, years ago. Now you get to remake it for like a much bigger budget. But what you really want to look at is not scope, but taste and perspective. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, the the career trajectory of filmmakers like that. But before I do that, you used a great analogy, which I really liked, which I've never used before, which I probably will start in that you had talked about food. Like you have to love genre horror filmmaking if you want to do that to be successful, right? Because uh, we've always talked about specificity and picking a lane, at least early on in your career as a writer, as a filmmaker kind of thing. But food is, I think, a great analogy. And the reason being, if you are a, a chef, right? And, or, you know, for example, the buyers are the, the diners and you really want great Italian food. Are you going to go to a great Italian restaurant or are you going to go to the diner that has Italian food and Chinese food and a million other things that they may offer and it may be okay. But if you really are in the mood for great Italian food, which restaurant are you really going to go to? Well, that's the thing. If a, if a buyer, a producer, an exec, somebody has a job writing a genre idea, a horror idea, are they going to go to a writer who specializes in horror that's really good at that? Or a writer who can do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They're pretty good at a bunch of different things. I mean, if you're the buyer, you want a great horror writer, right? So, I mean, that was a great analogy. Okay, so um, 
let's go back to uh, when you worked with Toby Hooper, obviously he was already Toby Hooper, right? So uh, that's a different situation. But someone like Adam Wingard, who, you know, got his start as you were talking about, you know, doing smaller budget uh, horror genre films, but recently did a huge, you know, Godzilla versus Kong blockbuster film. What does a career trajectory look for someone like Adam Wingard, for example? So like, again, so I'll put context out there. So mm-hmm. my brother mm-hmm. went to Full Sail with, um, with Adam mm-hmm. and they went uh, together, uh, both going to this random film school. And I think the best uh, value they got from the school was meeting each other. Like, I think they, they met each other and they fell into that kind of like films and all these directors from around the world. And they just totally got into it. And they started out of school. They made this, started making this movie called Homesick, which was a very low budget slasher. And I literally dropped out of high school to run over there and literally do anything on that set. Like I was like doing production design. I was like building like all set decoration because it was like way more fun than literally being in school. So I worked on that film and then I continued to help out and assist on uh, the second movie, which was just anything they needed. I was just like, they snapped their fingers. I'd run around, whatever they need to like get this going. Was it was to me, I love, I've always loved genre films. I literally grew up with like John Woo and John Carpenter. Those were like my dads. Like to me, mm-hmm. like being working in these genre, genre films is my, is my jam. So it start off of a slasher. And I mean, we had, um, we had some great actors in it that were fun. Like Bill Mosley, who was in The Devil's Rejects. We had Tom Tolles, who was in Henry Portrayal Serial Killer. So fun genre people. And Tiffany Shepis, who's a great screen queen. So we worked on the first one. And then the second one, you know, um, you know, that was another one. And what you notice, at least with the team, Evan and Adam, is that they got better every time and they got more defined with their tastes and what they're doing. And I do think that the reason you could see their success is they really give a shit about genre. They, mm-hmm. they are obsessive. Mm-hmm. They know every movie. Like, they they make it to a point where they don't miss anything. Like if there's a movie happening and it comes out of like some random place, they're going to watch it. Or there's a, and not just good movies. I think sometimes people are like, I only watch A24 films. And I'm like, yes, A24 is amazing. But you could also learn from a film that's flawed. Like a film that like is doing something different. Because sometimes when you're ambitious and you're trying ideas, they don't always cajel. You know, sometimes you get have a movie that feels like, man, like there's five nuggets in there that work and the rest suck. Like mm. you look at like Tarantino, Tarantino doesn't just know H24 films. He knows all these movies. He knows mm-hmm. all types of films because the more you could build that vocabulary, the more it's a competitive advantage. You could talk about tonal things that other people can't talk about. You can't be like, right. I'm doing a crime film, but it feels like Drive. And they're like, dude, everybody knows Drive. It's great. But like, come on, like, are you, what are we talking about? Are we talking about, um, who are we talking about? Who are the directors? Are we talking about Abel Ferrar? Who are, who are, like, when you're talking about crime, what is this thing, you know? So I think the reason they've been successful is they really give a shit. They really obsess about movies. They're always watching them, breaking them down, watching them again. And it's how you train your mind into really figuring out what you want to do, how we want to talk about it, what the experience is like. Mm-hmm. is it like this or is it like that 
So if you have like an incomplete vocabulary, you'll be like, I'm just trying to make something spooky or I'm just trying to make, you know, like, what are you doing here? You know? So there's a lot of, which, which you notice actually is there's a lot of writers and directors that come from journalism. Mm-hmm. There is, there are like, I know, but not just like writers and directors, but also producers um, who come from journalism. And the reason is, is they have such a good way of like consuming all these movies and then they know how to get it out of their system. Like, my brother was a journalist, you know, before he was a journalist, he wrote zines. Like he was constantly mm. taking things in. Right. So I think journalism is a huge advantage to being a writer or a director because you're not only like consuming everything, you're also breaking it down and talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a client who's a, who's, a, who's a writer. We just brought on a journalist turned director who's done some really great stuff. So she came with that perspective. So I think that's the one thing. The other thing is taste. It goes down to taste. Why, why are these festival directors getting these big budget movies? It's because they show they, they're not going to do stupid stuff. Hmm. There, you watch movies all the time at festivals and you're like, oh, why did they do that? Or that, why did they like, why did they edit out that bad actor? Like, they just don't have taste. So I think sometimes we get nervous when we want to be a filmmaker. Like, oh my God, I need all these resources. You don't. If me and you made a movie together right now, you directed it, I acted in it, right? And it was just us on, this was the movie. Was the, mm-hmm. But you had really good taste. This could get you a job. There's mm-hmm. no budget here. But if you think about it, a lot of these found footage movies were just, just a perspective. How are we going to do it? It wasn't like you had like a dolly can, and cams and cranes. It's like, no, you have a way in, you mm-hmm. know? So I think that there's almost sometimes an over, there's too much pressure on the bigness of something, but it's not about the taste. Because if you can make this too, like I think Pop Skull was like two thousand dollars, whatever, like super low budget. It doesn't matter. You watch it, you're like this director has a perspective and taste. Mm-hmm. So if you give them more money, it's gonna keep looking good. Mm-hmm. Like in some ways, you kind of look at it like taste scales. So Chloe Zhao or any of these filmmakers that come from festival movies, you go. How do they get this little personal drama and get a giant movie? Is that movie felt right? The mm-hmm. songs were right. So in some ways, it's like you either got taste or you don't. Like, that's the thing. It's like you either, like we're speaking to you as a director, mm-hmm. you either could be able to kind of feel what feels right or you don't. Because it really, like, it should never be about a budgetary restriction. It should be about what you're bringing to the conversation. Because if you think about it, you as a podcaster has perspective. Mm-hmm. You're telling a story, you're bringing people in, there's, you're curating and people are listening, they're engaging in the same way of being a low budget filmmaker. You don't need to show people like a car chase. You just need to show like someone sitting in a car with their partner talking. One light through the window, it's a little dark. The right song plays, you feel something because it doesn't take money to make people feel emotions or make people think. That mm-hmm. is not budgetary. So I think when you're speaking to these directors, you know, that we're talking about is they, they never cared about those things. They cared about what are we going to do to tell the right story? And they never got their ego. We got to make it big in the way of making it good. Right. And as the opportunities came in, they kept proving themselves. So each time you get a bigger budget, you get more complexities. There's more X factors start coming in. So yeah, you could say it was hard when it was small, no resources, but what if your crew's bigger? What if you're working with bigger actors? What do mm-hmm. they expect from you? So as you keep passing these tests, you keep getting trusted of more money. Like a great script, you sell it, they could do whatever they want with it, 
there's a, there's a little bit of a risk, right? Buying the script. There's a lot more risk when there's a director and you're like, here's the keys to my $10 million car. Mm. Now drive away, you know? So I think it's about constantly proving yourself that in these harder situations, this video game you're playing, that you keep performing each step of the way. And once you get to the top, they've trusted you and the movie has made money and has gotten mm -hmm. great reviews. So it has a critical response that's positive. And there's been an audience that has really like on a populist level have engaged with it. If you're talking about a big studio film. Right. So that's how I look at their success is each time they get tested, they keep proving they still have good taste and they still right. have a perspective. Right. That makes sense. Um, I wanted to delve more into story and uh, you as a manager slash producer, how that works, the phases of that and that kind of stuff in the development process. But we do have uh, questions here that I wanted to get to a few audience questions from those in um, the live stream. Um, the first being from uh, David Wales, our friend David. Uh, how are you, Dave? So he says, I've taken maybe two good photographs in my life. Is not having a photographer's eye a barrier to becoming a writer-director? Should I take uh, the time and energy to develop this skill? I think it, it depends. Uh, because I, I think that like the way you tell a story as a director is also how you how you build anything in a way. So you go, what's important? And it goes back to this podcast that we're having. This podcast is very specific about a way into the industry mm -hmm. that a lot other podcasts don't have. This is what makes this one special. So you have to go, what is your perspective? What makes your perspective special? Mm -hmm. Maybe your perspective is, I'm not a visual guy, but what to me, it's dialogue. I want to have two people sitting in a room talking. Okay. The camera works a little sloppy or whatever but you're really paying attention to these characters. There was another director, they'll have a tracking shot outside the window. We're talking and the camera is moving out the mm -hmm. window where you can barely see us and, you know, or whatever. And the camera eventually comes in. That's important to that director. So in a, in a lot of ways, you have to go, what's important to me? Maybe you're not a photographer. So maybe that's not the thing that really intrigues you. It's the way words work. Mm -hmm. So then maybe you shoot it quasi-documentary style and you just have a roaming camera and no one's going to care that the camera is not perfect they're wondering what we're saying and one thing to think about right now we've all been conditioned by social media instagram serves up so much content every day mm -hmm. and do we watch these unprofessional videos to see what's going on with our friends and family or work associates because we have empathy mm -hmm. empathy is the connector it's not the fact that one of our friends has a steady cam and they're shooting in magic, you know, magic hour. It's like beautiful. And there's beach, there's waves crashing. And it's the most beautiful image ever. No, it's them talking to their baby. That's it. There's no script. Them talking to their baby. So if you're like, Oh my God, it has to be visually perfect. That's a pressure you're putting on yourself. And if you <laughs> really want to be somebody where the visuals work in a certain way, then yeah, maybe the photography learning that more and lighting is what's important. Or if you're like, I don't really care that much. I'm all about dialogue. Mm -hmm. Then maybe the shaky camera, what people are talking is what you make it valuable to you. And then that becomes your signature as a director where they're like, yeah, they're not a visualist. But did you see that moment? And like when they're talking about like breakup and they're crying, that moment just hit me. 
and the reason it hit me because it was raw, the camera wasn't holding and it was like, it wasn't slick, but it felt real. Mm-hmm. So authenticity doesn't always mean slick. Authenticity means like it feels like you made of your hands. And I, I get what you're saying. And I think that that's uh, incredibly helpful. What, when you're talking about uh, perspective, I think was the most uh, valuable piece here. Like, because um, as far as like the lighting and other things not being as important, especially when you get to upper levels, you'll have a cinematographer, right? They'll be dealing with that and they'll give you looks and say, which one do you like better, right? But what you're talking about, which I think is fantastic, is have that point of view, have that perspective, have an idea of kind of the story you're trying to tell and the way in which you need to tell it, but then collaborate with the cinematographer, right, to get the, the, the exact framing right and the lighting. And so, you know, as, as a visual filmmaker, maybe you don't have that skill set yet, but working with a cinematographer, you can build that relationship and they can help you with that portion of it because that's their job, right? Whereas, but if you don't start off with having your own taste, your own voice, your own perspective, your own POV, it's hard to translate, right? The, the cinematographer will just have to be left to their own devices to figure out as opposed to you as a filmmaker, you know, uh, using your own point of view to tell that story, right? So yeah, I, I totally agree. It's mm-hmm. like, so I love these two directors. I love De Palma and mm-hmm. I love Sean Baker. And they both feel there's something more important in different scenes. They both have overlap of what's important, mm-hmm. but there's certain things that De Palma's gonna do that Sean Baker's not gonna do and vice versa. So I think you have to go, where is my pleasure as a director? Where am I getting pleasure from? Is it just capturing the moment? Is it making it more tonal or more, you know, is it just creating a weird atmosphere? Is, is it making you conscious of the camera? Because when you watch a De Palma film, you're aware there's a camera moving. It doesn't feel like you're sitting in a room watching people talk to each other. Like you're there. Mm-hmm. De Palma makes you feel it's like this heightened experience where the camera is rolling around or like James Wan. James Wan will whip the camera around. The camera flips around. You know, like that's what they love to do. So you have to go like within my limited budget. And if I can't hire someone to help me shoot it within this constraints, what gets me excited to do it? Mm-hmm. Like, why am I doing it? Like, is it, why are you passionate about it? So if you're like, oh no, it's not gonna look perfect. No one's stopping it. Mm-hmm. You go out there and the camera's shaky, but there's this one moment that your actor does something very funny and everyone's like, that was really good. That's enough. Because I think that the, the, the way I look at it is your voice and your develops, the more you do it. Mm-hmm. And it's like exercise. You're doing these reps as a writer or a director. Mm-hmm. The more you do it, it's not diminishing return. It's not like, oh my God, I spent four years on it. No, four years have made you four years better. So you keep staying on it and experiencing things and trying things out. But if you're worried that you don't have the photographer's eye, then you don't have time to put in that work to gain that experience. So the experience is paramount. So mm-hmm. you just don't want to put the pressure on your shoulders and go, this thing that I made, it has to perform at this level because then I think that's a limiting factor. And I think right. that same with writing. If you go, this script is going to get me out of wherever I live and I'm going to do all these things with the script. That's a lot of pressure to put on the script. But if you're like, I'm going to really learn from it. It's going to be a great experience. It's a journey and hopefully turns out really well. But even if you get to the end of it and you don't get all these results, you internally have gained a lot of it. It's, mm-hmm. it's that's what I'm saying. It's experiential 
and you'll keep building off of that. So I don't think you should worry about the look of it. You should just focus on just being active. Right. And I would add, if you are concerned about, you want to direct as a writer and you are concerned about the storytelling, the visual aspect of it, uh, again, reiterating, don't worry about the lighting part of it. Don't worry about that kind of stuff, but watch, maybe write a short. It could be anything. It doesn't even have to have dialogue, right? You know, someone going from downstairs, upstairs. And now in the, in today's world with, you can shoot and edit on your phone, right? And then find or, or watch some films and see what shots that they're using to tell this narrative story, because that's really all you need to know. I need a shot of feet going upstairs. I need a wide shot, maybe if I don't want suspense, you know, of where he's going, you know, like a POV shot, maybe a shaky POV shot, or do I want to show the whole staircase so you can see the person walking up or just the feet because there's more tension there. Um, are, they, are they running? Are they walking? You know, all these types of things, figure out that kind of stuff. And it doesn't have to be good. It could be really uh, poorly filmed. You don't need to light it at all because again, that's not your job, but knowing what shots put together do what, I think that will help you as, uh, as not just a, a filmmaker, but as a writer, but especially as a filmmaker. So, um, and again, it doesn't cost you anything, right? You can just take your camera, bring a friend or family member and say, hey, walk up those stairs and shoot their feet and shoot a POV shot of them going up the stairs and show, show the reverse of them coming up, you know, these types of things. And then you'll learn what visual aspects, you know, visual shots you need to tell your story of someone going upstairs, right? And then you can expand on that. Um, okay, so let's see here. We've got more here. Uh, doo -doo 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 -doo. Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, Simba to Hey, Simba. Um, am I a jaded screenwriter to think that it's easier to get a film adaptation made as a novelist than as a screenwriter? It depends. I think that like, there's, there's a lot of categories of types of films out there. Mm -hmm. And when we say a film made, so there's different markets. So if we're talking about like a studio film, I think there's been a real reliance uh, over the years on uh, big IP mm -hmm. and, um, and major um, movies, you know, even look at like the Sonic the Hedgehog film. I don't think a lot of people play Sonic the Hedgehog were thinking maybe of a movie. I mean, I did it. I liked the game, but like they really built out a, you know, to me, I thought it was really good. Like I enjoyed it, but like, I just saw Sonic the Hedgehog and the fact that a lot of people have played Sonic the Hedgehog made a studio go, hey, we'll make money doing this. Mm -hmm. And they were right. Like, it, 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 it's done really well. Like, mm -hmm. it's, the, it's like people are like, we played it. We want to see Sonic's story. <laughs> like, but that's like a giant studio film because they have to like market a project in a very competitive, you know, media uh, landscape where there's so many distractions. So they're like, how do we cut through the noise? They're like Top Gun. Like, mm -hmm. we need to do another big sequel. So I think that there's like, these financial pressures on these film studios. And there's also financial pressures on these networks because there's a lot of like uh, producers that I talk to in TV and they're like, we just need a giant IP. So like even TV, I felt that even with that, you feel the, the pressure to, um, you know, give them like a giant Tom Clancy book or, you know, whatever it is, it's like, they need to cut through the noise too because it's competitive in TV, there's so many uh, shows. So I feel that like with film and TV, there's like major IP, but that's one part of the equation. 
The other part of the equation is uh, when, if you look at independent film, there's a huge budget range of indie films. There's indie films shot for $2,000. There's some shot for like $5 million. So I think there is pressures to, to make your movie get noticed, but I don't think it's as reliant on this IP factor. Mm-hmm. So like, for instance, say if you wanted to make a movie for $100,000, there's probably not as many uh, $100,000 films made based on IP. Uh, as budgets go up, Sometimes they're like, we need it to be based on a play. Or we need to be based on this or that. As the budget gets really big, um, it starts creating those demands mm-hmm. because there's because what happens is as risks go up, people have to deal. What are we going to do with these risks? So that let's say it's the five million dollar indie, they may not be able to cast unknowns. They might have to get stars or the director that's been known for something. So I think when you're looking at the reliance IP as a kind of a scale. So as the budgets go up, there's a much bigger reliance on IP for mm-hmm. film and TV. But there's also TV shows like Skins, which was a low budget show. It was a British show, but it was a really good drama, which was, it was a low budget. But if Skins was a giant budget, they would be like, maybe it should be based on a big novel or something mm-hmm. or whatever. So you have to look at, what are the types of projects you're, you're, you're making? If it's a hundred million dollar film, that obviously becomes very reliant on having that IP. But if you're making maybe even a $10 million film, it may not be as reliant. So you just have to look at the budget of it going up and down, you know, uh, where are we at with it? Um, because I think everyone who's making those decisions are scared they might lose their job if they make the wrong choice. Right. So if you have a project and it's in that mid range, it's just less reliant on IP, but it gets bigger. It gets more reliant, you mm-hmm. know, with film. And then with TV, the biggest budget shows I've seen tend to be either like just huge creators or they're like, you know, Stephen King or whatever. Like they need, they need a deal. It's just dealing with risk. Mm-hmm. And if there's a, if we were in another business, like let's say venture capital, you invest in a startup, they have this whole risk factor too. So any area where people are like, here's money, hopefully we're successful, they're going to do things that deal risk. Lower budgets, there's less uh, stakeholders, mm-hmm. then you have a little bit more autonomy to do what you want to do without having those pressures. Right. And, and in terms of his question, like, do you think it's easier to get a film adaptation made as a novelist and a screenwriter? Wouldn't it have more to do with the success of whatever it is that you're adapting than whether the writer was the novelist themselves or a screenwriter. Like for example, if it's a self-published book, but it had sold half a million copies, if the screenwriter is adapting the book and it had that versus the novelist, it's still the fact that the, that adaptation had sold half a million copies as an indie book versus a novelist that has the IP rights to their own novel that, you know, sold a few thousand copies on Amazon, whatever self-published. Wouldn't that make the difference more than what the writer's title is, i.e. novelist versus screenwriter? Okay. So it's kind of complicated. So first off, I was just breaking down with about the risk factors and Mm -hmm. investments. So how IP plays into risk and the IP we're talking about is like huge IP. It's like Clive Barker, Stephen King, Tom Clancy. Those are like going to move the needle and, and TV feels like they're getting more reliant on this big blockbuster IP, you know? You'll see some of the most successful major producers like Roy Lee, 
they're mm-hmm. focused on great IP. They, they're not only, they know what's really good IP and they're trusted with this incredible IP because everyone who will work with them know they'll handle it properly. Mm-hmm. So it's like the maintenance mm-hmm. of this legendary stories and, you know, characters. And there are producers that are trusted with them and they are given them and they know how to manage them. Okay. And also writers and directors that are trusted with them. It's a big deal. So when I look at IP, now we're going back to the question about what is it better, the title novelist or screenwriter? So this is how I look at IP because mm-hmm. I manage not only writers and directors, I manage IP creators. And I, as a producer, I've optioned IP. So I'm well-versed in it. So this is how I, I, call, I call it like the three piece. There's mm-hmm. um, pre-composed, which is just, it lays out the, the story uh, for you. Like you get the, you have it built out. It's like a blueprint. So even if only your parents read the book, it is laid out. It is, mm-hmm. it's there. And the concept is strong because it, you'll notice that there are plenty of projects made by underground comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are comic books that haven't even been read that by many people, but the idea is strong mm-hmm. and the feel of the characters is strong. So it's not reliant on the second P, which is pre-awareness. So pre-composed is just strong concept. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just the concept that you're buying into. And then everyone just guts the story. Or it's pre-composed. We love the concept. And then we love the rest. Like there's a lot here. So we're, so it's almost like in tech, it's called a limited viable product. Mm-hmm. And what is the least amount of thing you could do to show what your business is, you know? And in this way, it's pre-composed because we're like, we don't have the movie, but this is what the experience could be. So, so it's pre-composed. So that isn't even reliant on the popularity because mm-hmm. there's plenty of IP that's pre-composed. That's compelling. Uh, pre-awareness is like Sonic. Sonic doesn't have a blueprint for you as a producer. Mm-hmm. Like when you get Sonic, you're like, I love Sonic, but what is the, that? What is that? What, yeah. What's the story? But mm-hmm. millions of people have played it. And then the third P is prestige. So you may not get a huge audience, but the New Yorker reviewed the, the material. Mm. Okay. So the reviews are there. So that's the three P's. If you have every single one, it's very easy to say yes. Mm-hmm. Let's make this. If you get one, one could drive a yes. So you could get the prestige project that's really weird, doesn't have a huge audience, and doesn't really feel like a movie, but mm-hmm. it's really respected. And someone might go, that's enough to get money. So if you go, hmm, maybe the book is something that I could get interest on, maybe it is because IP even if it's not validated as a New York Times bestseller, mm-hmm. it's still valuable. There mm-hmm. are businesses right now that are very successful where they're producers who also publish content. Mm-hmm. So for example, Q Code makes podcasts, but then produce TV shows based on those podcasts. Mm. There's all sorts of businesses that will, what I call reverse engineer, start with where they want to be and then kind of design the IP around that. So I don't think it's bad if you want to do that, but you just have to keep in mind that your novel is competing against other novels Mm -hmm. that may have all three of those. So you at least want to make sure if you're going to write it as a novel, you have to ask yourself, why am I writing as a novel? If you really feel comfortable in that form, you should do it. If that excites you, 
but you're gonna still have to market if you self-publish it, you still have to market it and you're still going to have to uh, be competitive of other IP. Just because it's mm -hmm. IP isn't always enough. You're, you're just as much as the script competes of other scripts, mm -hmm. your IP competes of other IP. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, Scrappy Coco says, uh, from the perspective of a manager, which you are, uh, what's your favorite trope people put in their scripts that you think always works? I mean, I don't think anything always works. I think that like the reason I sign any clients is they have a voice. So I love reading great scripts mm -hmm. by writers that really have a lot of definition to what they want to write, how they write, what it's important to them. So to me, I can't really find a universal of a thing that has like a common thread. Mm -hmm. I sign somebody because every day you have that little bit of that apathy. You wake up, you're kind of tired, you're getting those routines and it just snaps you out of it. You're like, whoa, like this is different. It took me out of my routine. Mm -hmm. Because you could just read through a ton of scripts or watch tons of movies and samples, but there's something that freezes time. Your phone doesn't matter anymore. You're not looking at Twitter. Everything just shuts down. You need to like lock in. And that is because you're getting somebody with such a unique way into storytelling. So to me, I, the writers and directors and IP creators I sign are the ones that take me out of that the day-to-day, -day, like mm -hmm. the day-to-day moments into like the extraordinary and that's what gets me but there's no commonality to how they write because just like a director may feel a shaky camera with a real conversation is more important than the 360 camera going mm -hmm. the same way of a writer what a writer finds important is way more different than another writer so to me those unique qualities are what are interesting mm -hmm. gotcha uh, let's see here. Uh, Simba again. I made one of my original scripts into a popular public domain remake. Uh, do you think that could get it more attention? I don't know what public domain remake is, unless maybe it's a novel. Maybe they wrote a novel. Uh, maybe you can clarify Simba. But anyway, he said he took one of his original scripts into and turned it into a popular public domain remake. Uh, does would that get it more attention potentially? I think that like you're doing something that's really uh, powerful mm -hmm. is you're not just relying on the form of the script. Like I do think that what you start to notice is there's a lot of really savvy writers that are doing podcasts right now because they have the ability to get actors who want to lend their voices to something. So suddenly like... <clears throat> Instead of going, oh, you're staffed on a show. That's great. That's something, right? But here, this podcast is a whole other thing. So it's being able to engage with the world where you're not just reliant on an industry going, yes, mm -hmm. we embrace this project in you. It's like, no, I'm just making things. So I think that the more you make things and put yourself out there, the more you add kind of dimension to you. Because I think it's, it's cool like to have a Twitter account, right? And be like, oh, look, here's my Twitter account. That's great. But Twitter is like, turns all of us into like, we have to get more stuff on Twitter, but Twitter is not really that timely. Like you, you put a tweet out there and it gets buried with a hundred other tweets. So if you have content that's this remix con content that is evergreen. As long as it's on YouTube, there's going to be more viewers that are getting pulled to it. So to me, I don't know what attention you're gonna instantly get. So I don't know if it's instantly industry attention, but it is a way to kind of build out your mm. brand 
So yeah. for me, I would say be as active creatively as you can, but don't come in there with the expectation that there's going to be like this like feedback loop that you'll put it out and then you'll get this. But if you love making this type of content, just keep doing it. Like I love talking on podcasts. I love doing it. It's just my nature. I enjoy the conversation or mm-hmm. I like writing about like media and technology. So it's interesting to me, but we can't do things predicated on the industry validation. You got to do it because of it. you love it. So you could keep doing it. And then if something pays off, great. But I think it's positive that you're doing it. Because we just can't, re- we can't just look to the studio and go, please make my movie or right. the network. Because you know what? We're in a crazy time. The churn rate on TV shows is nuts. There's so many shows that just get canceled after one season. Mm-hmm. So and the seasons get- are short runs. They're six, yeah. eight episodes. So even if you sell your show, there's a chance the show gets canceled. Mm-hmm. So like, wouldn't it be nice that even if you're in the system and you make your show or you get hired by the studio, do you just have one thing that you protect that's your creativity that's all you. Mm-hmm. So I think you should totally like uh, embrace it, but just don't look at it to get it. Just do it to do it. If that's something you love. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Uh, Travis Williams. I've been a big fan of scripts and scribes since I moved to LA. Well, welcome to LA Travis. And thank you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and lend us some information. Well, you're very welcome, Travis. Thank you for the kind comment. Uh, Emily Mulvey. So for a newbie with little to no experience behind a camera, more Blair Witch, less cracking bones, bent bodies and otherworldly beings, question mark. Uh, so I think she's asking, uh, if someone with less experience behind the camera, do you recommend sort of that found footage thing if they wanted to get into, uh, develop their own, uh, genre film versus, you know, like the ones with special effects and visual effects and gore and blood and all that kind of stuff. I think it's the thing is if, do you love found footage films? Mm, I love found footage films. Mm -hmm. I love parent activity. Um, Blair Witch, um, Lake Mungo, which is really good. It's an Australian found footage film. There's a Spanish one called Wreck that mm-hmm. I love. So to me, if I heard that you had a found footage film, I'll be excited to watch it. I watch even like ones that are unknown. But you actually have to share that love too. Mm-hmm. Like it has to be so. The motivator shouldn't be budget. The motivator should be like, oh my god, I'm gonna scare the shit out of you. I have this idea. Mm-hmm. I've loved these other found footage films. I'm going to do something they didn't, they didn't do. But if it's just based on budget, so much work to do it. So then you also have to ask yourself, well, if it's not a found footage movie and you can't have bodies flying around and hitting walls, but what you could do is sound design. Mm. Let's say I'm in this room right now and I hear, vroom, vroom, and I look outside. I'm like, what's trying to get in? And mm-hmm. then somebody gets goes outside and hear all these sounds and then you see a mangled body but you don't because you have no budget you don't just show the mangled body you have it behind a car Mm. so you see like a foot like twisted because the thing about art is every piece of art you create is a collaboration of an audience Mm. the audience completes your movie the movie itself doesn't exist in a vacuum so if you give the idea of something horrible the audience completes that. And the more mm. you play with their imagination, the cheaper it would be. Right. A quiet place could have a giant monster run through a wall. We can't do that. But I think the, I think the thing is, if it's not that you love found footage films, then you should just play with the psychology of the scene that doesn't demand you doing something that you just can't afford. Mm-hmm. But if you do love the found footage medium, to, to do something in that form. But it really has to be about your passion. Right. No, and I love 
when you mentioned that the audience completes the the story, which is is brilliant because I'd never heard it phrased in that way. Uh, I do remember, and I've, I think I've relayed the story uh, before on the podcast, where I read an interview from uh, Roman Polanski about Rosemary's Baby, and there's a scene where the mother kind of looks into the the uh, the crib, I think it's the crib, and just a horrified look on her face of the appearance of the baby, but you never as an audience see it. But because of the reaction and what's in your head, you kind of have that visceral reaction. And Polanski said, because he knew that nothing he showed the audience would be as scary as what was in their own minds, he didn't show the baby because he had the budget, obviously, to do that. He, they could have thrown some special effects or whatever, makeup and made this horrible creature. But he thought, again, in his mind, that let the audience fill in the blanks because what they're going to come up with is scarier than what we could do. So that sort of that loop, which is what you're describing, which I think is brilliant. Uh, and as a, you can use that as your, to your advantage as a low budget filmmaker, right? Find areas where you can do that. I, um, I totally agree with what you're saying because you're focusing on an actor, right? And the reality is the best visual effects mm -hmm. is an amazing performance, right? That's true. That's what it is. We are selling the story with mm -hmm. our faces. And if we're scared of an alien invasion and I'm having a panic attack and I'm like, oh shit, like, oh my God, that's happening. You could have the best visual effects artists have hundreds of UFO, UFOs flying around. <laughs> but if it's a lousy like actor just going, what? What's going on <laughs> out there? You know, no one's going to buy it. But if you have like Elizabeth Moss, mm -hmm flipping out about UFOs, mm -hmm. you're going to buy it because right. she's an amazing actress. So I think that like, we shouldn't be worried about the budget. We just got to figure out the way in mm -hmm. to make it work. And if you ended up directing this movie and it does really well, the next one, you could have a budget mm -hmm. and you could have a visual effects supervisor because you proved to everyone you have good taste. Mm -hmm. But even with visual effects, great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. You still have to make sure your great taste stays with that. Right. Because you, it doesn't just work on autopilot. You still need to work with them. If you want to do that big, you know, spectacle, like you see the new Top Gun, the director had good taste. They had a lot of money, but there was good taste. Mm -hmm. too. So I think as your career builds, you'll have those opportunities, but the challenges are still going to be the same. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Travis Williams uh, most, if not all managers say not to bother with query letters and contacting them. They mostly ignore queries and that they look for clients based on references. So as a dark drama horror writer that has created an award-winning web series, stage plays, horror radio plays, wow, a lot, and comic books, and am knowledgeable when it comes to the industry, how would you recommend someone like me contact you for a meeting without an immediate referral? Thank you. Okay. I think there, there, there's a frame. Mm -hmm. I... I'm not somebody that has a universal taste, okay? And you speak to some amazing managers on here and mm -hmm. they all have different perspectives. Now, there are times where three managers want the same client and everyone's like, wow, like this is the great writer. But there are times where somebody talks to 30 managers and then one goes, you're my client, you're mm -hmm. amazing, let's work together. And then that person becomes a rock star. They become amazingly successful. Okay, so I only have a subjective view. I do not evaluate quality. I want to be very clear. I am not somebody that goes, 
this is good or bad. I only operate with my taste. Mm. Okay. So if you're getting rejections from certain managers, it could be a taste thing. Like there's a taste thing. I'm not looking to meet you when you send me a query letter. I'm looking to go, hmm, are there qualities that interest me? Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, when you're looking for a query letter is me like selling a script or a pitch or whatever, is there's a sales funnel, okay? The problem, so the, when I look at a sales funnel, it's in business, there's a triangle, okay? The problem is people don't start with the front. The front is the easiest to understand thing, like the pitch, it's like a log line. But then as you get through the, the, the triangle, you get to more complex ideas, what something is, how it works. The problem is sometimes people send me five freaking log lines, mm-hmm. a bunch of things, it's too much. But it's not to get my, they're not trying to, you need to get the person to go, hmm, I want to go down the sales funnel. I want to know more. So when I call an executive on the phone to pitch them a client or something, I typically talk to them for five minutes. I don't talk to them for two hours. Mm-hmm. They don't have more than like five minutes. So the idea that I would just meet you is not the frame. The frame should be, how do I get them interested mm-hmm. to engage? That's the first, we're jumping steps to meeting. It should be, how do I get them interested? So this is what I feel with query letters. You need to figure out how you editorialize them. How do you get people thinking? It's just the same way we're talking about uh, art is completed by the, the other person, the, the viewer. Same thing with a query letter. You can't give them everything. You want them to read into things. Like I'm a multi-platform storyteller. Ooh, what's that multi-platform storyteller versus mm-hmm. I do all these, all these things. You go, I'm multi-platform storyteller. I work across this. So the less is more because the manager is just inundated with so many responsibilities that they're like, whoa, too much. I'll tell you this. The longer the query letter is like diminishing return. The bigger it is, the more likely I'm just going to delete it. Mm-hmm. If it's just like, hey, Peter, I saw you on a podcast. I, I engage with, I, I, I like it. I got this one project that's my sample. Here's the log line. Mm-hmm. Hmm, interesting. Here's a little background on me. I'm a stand-up comedian and I, I, um, I just moved to LA from Australia. Oh, you're from Australia. That's cool. And I've been part of these, uh, the Sundance Incubator. Oh, it's Australian comedy writer. That's mm-hmm. not a lot of heavy lifting. Maybe we'll engage. The logline's cool. But I think the problem is sometimes we have so much to say mm-hmm. to sell to somebody. And I have the same challenges you have. I know it sounds weird. A manager has the same challenges as, as a writer. I love a lot of projects. But then the challenge I have is how do I distill what they are to go out and sell them? Mm-hmm. You have to do the same thing I do on a daily basis. Distill what you're about that activates the curiosity of the, the reader. So you have to take yourself out of the equation and go, I have to have empathy for the person I'm selling to. You know, what, what are they going through? What does their day-to-day look like? And I've typically said that like about query letters is if I could read it in the form of my phone, like if I could just pick up my iPhone and go, hmm, there's a log on, that's good. But if I have to keep, if I have to keep um, scrolling, Mm-hmm. That's the problem. And I, I think the other thing that I have a problem with query letters is when they're not personalized, mm-hmm. where it's like, hi, who, who am I? I? My name is Peter. Hi, Peter. 
then you just feel like it's just been copied and pasted a hundred times. Mm-hmm. So, Which you have, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think the key is short, just personal to a point. Hey, I noticed that you manage such and such. I do similar things. Here's a one log line. This is a little bit of like, it's like a one paragraph thing. So you just have to do what I do. Activate curiosity. Mm-hmm. And if it's too much, you don't activate curiosity. And I know it sounds like, oh my God, it's a lot of work. I do this with IP. I just signed an author. I'm literally creating log lines, short summaries for even a short story. Mm-hmm. Just so when I talk to an executive and say, hey, this short story could be a TV show or whatever, they could go log line, activate curiosity. I want to know more. Read the short summary. That's a couple of paragraphs. Then go down the sales funnel, read the short story, which will mm-hmm. probably take them an hour. See? So you have to track it with empathy. You have a lot to say. That's great. But who is the manager? What does their life look like? What is going on? So you just have to figure out how to editorialize your message so it has the best impact. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Where you describe it as uh, engage, you know, getting their interest, engaging their interest, curiosity, because it seems like a lot of writers, like you say, have a lot to say. So they're jumping steps. They're giving all the background. They're giving all the information, all the other stuff. And they don't have the attention yet. If you can't get their attention, then you're, you've, you've moved ahead too fast. You just need to have that little wet their appetite to, look, to want to know more. Um, and I think, like you said, so many reps have so little time that you give them five log lines or your query letters, you know, eight paragraphs or what they just delete, move on. So I think you laid it out perfectly. So yeah, do what, what Peter just said in your queries, because <laughs> I think that was a great breakdown there. Um, let's see here. Rodney 92 says, do you mostly handle small budget writers? No, I had all sorts of writers and I mean, I just do uh, curation around what gets me excited. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a pilot of robots running around and it's not going to be a low budget, you know, mm-hmm. we're going out of it. So like, it's definitely big. But then I have a client, she's developing a, um, a cool one location thriller with me. And I told her like, this is your first directing opportunity. Mm-hmm. Let's make the floor $100,000. But if we cast it up and it's bigger, it could be a million dollars. But at least you have a range. So sure. you get the opportunity to direct. And if we bring on a great producer and they cast it up, cool, let's make a bigger movie. But it's not going to kill the movie if we get the little budget. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't do this just to like, like with one type of thing. It would be boring. I've been pitched a, a client from an assistant at a, an agency and I'm intrigued. Maybe I'll sign them. Who knows? They write interesting comedy stuff, but it just has to like, it's like music. Like I like all sorts of music mm-hmm. that's so different. Like I have the most ADD taste in music. I like this French artist, Gustafistine, intense electronic music. But then I like like bright eyes, like acoustic music. So like mm-hmm. I'm all across the board. And I think regards to who I manage, I think that like my roster are all really different. There isn't a lot of through line. I do have genre, but I do have comedies. It's just really what gets me excited because mm-hmm. as hard as it is to be a writer, it's really challenging to be a manager because you have to fight tooth and nail to make people believe in something that is clearly amazing. And eventually mm-hmm. you break mm-hmm. through, then you get producers on board, 
but then you still have to keep pushing to keep the project focused. And then it gets going. Then you have to get the next client's mm -hmm. project going. So you have to really care. So for me, like, yeah, like low budget's cool, but it's not, it's everything I curate is against my emotions. If I mm -hmm. feel emotions and I feel reaction, that is really my compass and navigates it. If I right. don't feel anything, it could be a great script. And I've passed on people as a manager. Mm -hmm. they're, you look at them, they're doing great. I feel good for them, but they didn't fit my taste. So I'm not just gonna throw a giant roster together, a bunch of people I'm apathetic about. So really it's just about my sensibilities. Mm -hmm. That's what really gauges, not budget, not genre. That's really where I'm at. Right. And I think we've been talking a lot about sort of small budget stuff because you sort of have an interesting perspective on having uh, been party to or witnessed uh, individuals, again, like the Adam Wingards, who started off on small budget and were their way up to, you know, huge studio films. Uh, not that that's all you represent, but that's obviously. Well, and I don't, and I don't, I don't represent Adam. No, no, no. no but, yeah. Flat. <laughs> right. but, uh, but, you know, you have, a, again, a, a very personal point of view and, and take on that kind of thing. Um, I think for a writer director, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think you have to start low budget. So like, if you're talking about, you know, low budget, like, a lot of the directors I know, like my, like my clients, if they want to direct, or unless they've directed before, have to start somewhere, unless mm -hmm. they know someone who's super rich or right. they're friends of a big actor, um, you're going to have to prove yourself. It's a proving mm -hmm. ground, how you handle people, how you handle money, all that. Mm -hmm. So as a director, yeah, like the low budget is definitely, you know, in your advantage. If you're just a writer, a low budget's fine, but it's more, more likely if that's how you want to start as a team, mm. you might want to find a director. Right. So you might go, hey, I got my low budget ghost film, which is $100,000. You might want to look at every director that's done short films that are just awesome mm -hmm. or documentaries or whatever. And think like a producer and then take your script to the director. Because I know there's like this emphasis on managers. Oh my God, like managers, they... Um, they do this or agents or whatever. You as a writer are also a producer if you want to mm. be. And the reason that people have been successful is sometimes it's their friends. So if you have that $100,000 script, find a friend who's a director, then find a friend who's a producer. It's you, it's like the grassroots are what builds your career. It's mm -hmm. not just some magical studio. If you got together and you build community, community will build the opportunities and the industry mm. only chases what sparkles, what's shiny and things, things that are already done. So you can just go out there and watch a bunch of short films. If you're not a director and go, wow, I'm in LA. Who did this music video? Who did this? Reach out to them. And if they mm -hmm. have a manager or agent, go, Hey, I'm a, I got a script. I love, I think this person could get a, you know, a movie going and not go just for representation, go out to directors that are accessible. And if they've only done a short film, you teaming up with them is way more powerful than it's just a script floating around. Mm. So I think that like, because then you attract a, a director, they bring a vision to the, the script. And then that script becomes more real. Mm -hmm. And then if you too bring on a producer or you try to produce yourself and get money, getting $100,000 is a lot of work. It's intense. But if you find 10 people of $10,000, you get your movie going mm -hmm. and you're not relying on a manager or an agent. You've just gone out and make it happen. So right. I think that if that low budget script version works, it's good to find partners. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Uh, Scrappy Coco, are there hypothetically any dream projects you love any of your clients to work on, be it subject matter, mix of genres, IP, etc.? There's a movie that I love, but I would love to like remake, but anybody could listen and do it because I watch it. I love the movie Day of the Beast. It's a uh, it's an old horror film. Mm-hmm. It's basically kind of apocalyptic. Uh, you could you could look it up, um, mm-hmm. but I would I love to see a remake of it. Not to say it needs a remake of it, but I just like the movie. I would like to see it again in a different form because I just like it so much. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like a dream project, but it'd be like, hey, somebody, um, you know, do that. But it's like, to me, I don't think the remakes are ever necessary. I'm just mm-hmm. fun to watch. Um, and there's some books out there that I will, forgot which books, but there's some books out there that I, uh, that I wish were adapted, mm. but I don't, they don't have to be that. You know? so, I do, so, the, so it's just more casually where I'm like, hmm. That would be cool. Like if somebody did that, I wish, I don't even think it's necessary. Like I love the comic Stray Bullets. It's a noir comic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be adapted. The comic by David LaPam, it's a lot of fun. It doesn't need an adaptation. It's not a client, but he's just, you know, a comic I like. Like I would right. just watch it. So I don't really have something specifically for my clients. That would be my dream. But there is IP that I think is really fucking cool. Like Stray mm-hmm. Bullets is like a noir story that goes on through so many issues. It's like the noir film that you love mm-hmm. if it just became serialized. And it's right. all black and white. The art's amazing. It doesn't have to be anything else. But 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 if somebody did it, I'd probably watch it because it's cool. Right. Uh, Drunk Dracula. Thanks for doing these. Uh, thanks for watching, listening. Um, and I like your name, Drunk Dracula. <laughs> Question. An unrepped writer finishes a screenplay to great feedback from family, friends, a writer's group, and three to four paid evaluations. What's next? Blacklist, queries, contests? Peter? I think you want to do all the above. Mm-hmm. You know? So, so this is how I look at it. You as a writer are valuable. Every writer to me is valuable. Okay? Because you're generating ideas. Okay? But ideas become more valuable to a market when they're in a frame, but your ideas are always valuable. There's industry frame and then there's whatever. You look at like an artist, like Jackson Pollock. There's Jackson Pollock who's just doing innovative stuff, not in a frame. He's still an innovator, Mm -hmm. but then he's in the industry frame and the art world goes, wow, he's important. Abstract expressionism, amazing. Cuts of years later, he's passed away as arts and museums, but has that frame. But he's the same guy. It's the same art. So we can't look at the value from that frame. So you're valuable. You're a writer. You have ideas. So how do you try to get that frame to monetize it? You should be on Coverfly, Blacklist. You should do all those. You should do the contests. I've signed writers from Coverfly that are really good. And I've known other managers who signed them. Mm-hmm. Go put yourself on Coverfly. The other thing is I believe that writers should have websites. I would, I would get a website going. I would, um, I would get a really nice looking Twitter. I would tweet. I would be in the community. I would um, consider creating IP, maybe write a short story or write an article on film, like getting yourself into the community and putting yourself out there because it's really not like one thing. So the way I look at it is it's kind of like, there's a lot of rabbit holes to engage with anybody's identity online. You might find me from a podcast. You might find me from IMDb. You might find me from wherever, or I'm judging a contest. 
Managers have their own rabbit holes. It could be Twitter. It could be whatever. You have that too. So you should have as many as possible. So there's more ways in Mm -hmm. to engage with you and discover you. It's almost like back in the day, always say search engine optimization. Like there was this whole marketing. It's like, how do I get my results up or whatever? But the same thing as a writer. If you're not repped, how are people discovering you? Is it because you have a podcast where you interview people? Is it an article? Is it a short story? Is it a contest? The more of these rabbit holes that you have, the better you have. Mm-hmm. And then when they discover you, so they go down the rabbit hole. I like, the, I like a clean website with a bio, a contest, a list of log lines, because you don't just want them to find you. You also want to onboard them. Mm-hmm. They're here. What are you about? It's like, if you go on my website, story-driven, you could go, oh, here's his clients. Here's his bio. Who is he sure. worked with? So I have my onboarding. I think it doesn't hurt for writers that have theirs to kind of establish what they're about. So it's just easy to kind of get acclimated to whoever somehow someone discovers you. Yeah. Uh, Let's see here. Simba, one more time. Am I wrong to think a screenwriter must learn how to produce direct in order to show they're a good writer? Seems like being just a screenwriter isn't enough anymore. I mean, I think it goes back to impulse. Like when you wake up, every day and go, oh my God, I got to write. That's one. The other type of person goes, I got to write. Another person goes, direct, act, whatever. Like write, direct. Like there's so many things that you could be doing, right? Mm-hmm. So selling you the writer, director, actor, producer. That's what gets you excited. Do that. But it's not because you have to do it. It's because you want it. Maybe you write a low budget project. You find the director. You And I mean like, the producer mindset, I don't think is bad. Like, I do think every writer should have mm. that sense of, I got to figure out how to make this work. And does that mean I need to get a publicist when I'm bigger to build my brand, or I need to find the right director to work with? You do, in my opinion, not just look at it as I have a script. Mm-hmm. Because if you go, I'm a producer, then it puts you in a good position because then you go, I got a script. I'm not just going to managers. I found a director who did a movie at a like, slam dance who doesn't have a lot of momentum because the thing you'll, you'll be surprised is there's a lot of big directors who don't have scripts. There's mid-level to smaller level because finding good scripts is hard. So if you go to the director, they could have had like a cool indie movie, but they're small. They, mm-hmm. They've done like, they maybe their, their next movie is $500,000. They need you. So you don't have to be everybody but I think that one hat that I would never take off is the producer hat. We have to make our own careers mm-hmm. and we have to navigate what we need. And there is a level of what we have to own. So it's not just writing the script. It's building your brand online, figuring out who you need to partner with. And I think the problem is sometimes people network like this. They go, I'm here. I got to network with a person over here. If I get here, I've won. But mm-hmm. sometimes it's about like networking to you, like right to right next to you. Mm-hmm. Hey, you just did this. Can I pull you into my scene? Because every mm-hmm. artistic movement isn't people who are established, are people who are breaking in and creating noise and doing interesting things. It's the outsiders become the insiders. So I don't think you need the pressure to do all those things unless it's your impulse to do it and you feel passionate about mm-hmm. it. You just look around and go, I'm a producer. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be a top producer and no budgets and break everything down, but think like a producer. I got a script. Get the director. 
because the reps are wild. Like who knows what, what manager wants or what, you know, some big executive, but if you team up with a director that you find, they create a lookbook. Mm-hmm. That director's sister is friends with an actress. They pull that actress in. And that actress is friends with a financier who has $500,000. So right. building your grassroots movement to me doesn't hurt, whether or not it's a web series or whatever it is. Because if we're just waiting on the thing, sometimes that's, we just keep waiting a long time versus let's just kind of create your own momentum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Scrappy Coco almost put some swear words because, wow, Peter has the clearest explanation on IP and prestige I've seen anywhere. I agree. He's really good at this. Um, thank you, thank you. Just, to, just to be clear, I have a background. My dad owned two bookstores in San Diego. So I, oh, well. I, I basically lived in the IP world growing up. <laughs> uh, Rodden92, what's your favorite low budget film you've seen recently in a theater? Man, theaters, recent. But I, I, I didn't see this in the theater uh, because of obviously COVID and all that. Mm. But I love Censor, the, the horror film from Sundance. I thought that mm. was cool. Cool. It was basically the idea of like this censor censoring all these you know horror films back in the day and then mm. dealing with like this mental breakdown. And it's super character driven. I thought oh, that cool. was fun. I liked it. Yeah, no, and it sounds uh, just from that two second pitch. Yeah, I, I can kind of see it. So. There you go. There's your log line. Um, David or Daniel Fincher. Why don't I just call you David Fincher? Although maybe you will be the next David Fincher. Daniel Fincher says, would you sign someone from a short screenplay that's doing well online? Furthermore, is the Coverfly as an aggregator platform something you believe will uh, remain relevant in the future? Okay. Um, I personally <clears throat> don't look at short film scripts. I typically look at um, mm-hmm. specs, pilots, or IP. Mm-hmm. So it, it, to me, it's not relevant. I can't speak for other managers. Uh, everyone has their own uh, metrics mm-hmm. they curate against. So no, I don't. I don't deal with that. You know. Mm-hmm. But um, does Coverfly have the potential to stay relevant? I think that it operates as. A, uh, a pipeline between most, more often than not managers and then some agents and uh, in the, in, in the, in these writers. So I think it's kind of like, it's like this, it's ability to um, find somebody that's interesting that wouldn't possibly work if you didn't aggregate that right. situation. So it's really <clears throat> pragmatic for reps and writers to be on there and um one also thing to think about too is that like even though there's like script contests you know directors have the ability to throw a short film on youtube and immediately get views or throw it at a festival so i think if you're in that position you could just throw your your work everywhere and then you could start pulling in views Mm -hmm. so there's like this in some ways the tech like the internet is great for visual content that pulls you in Mm -hmm. so if you're like a writer there are platforms like i've signed writers off who are reddit authors their work gets like you know millions of views Mm -hmm. so on reddit their no sleep horror stories get views so it's something that builds attention and then there's writers who've built careers on a on wattpad like become Mm -hmm. you know fiction 
so I feel that there's certain platforms and Coverfly and to, it's, to me is like that because there's a trending of it. You see what's getting engaged in this. So it allows writers to almost in the same way have the experience as filmmakers with their short films online where they've traditionally got reps is writers can compete and perform on a platform. Mm-hmm. So I think it's um, useful to have that because without that, it's very challenging as a manager sometimes to find a writer because they don't have that. There's not a lot of technology that serves the community in that way. Right. And just going back to short screenplays for uh, a second, <clears throat> I think a lot of managers that I've spoken to are, are <clears throat> excuse me, averse to it solely because it's not as actionable. Like, it, I mean, it could be a writing sample, although not a lot of execs or showrunners or anybody are reading short screenplays per se, maybe as a backup sample. But unless you have a pilot or a feature or something, one, it's not actionable. You can't sell it. But also as a writing sample, a short is not necessarily the primary writing sample of most clients. Like you wouldn't send that necessarily as a first sample to introduce a writer to executives. Because if that's the first thing that they have and that's the only thing that they have, then it's, it's a tough sell. You're, you're, it's an uphill battle from that. But anyway. I agree. Um, Michael Manson, I've completed a horror script that is a new, unique way into an old pre-existing IP that currently belongs to a major film studio. I think this script would be of appeal to said studio. What What would you suggest my next move be? Would it be worthwhile querying reps with it or would they prefer a query based on something that isn't based on pre-existing IP? A lot to unwrap there. I think that like there's IP like Romeo and Juliet in a way where it's like, Mm. wow, everybody likes it. Right. But, you know, Shakespeare, was it Shakespeare? Is he going to sue us? Um, (laughs) uh, It'd be be of it. Mm -hmm. But I think the challenge is managers want to make money Mm. as quick as possible. If there's a great piece of material that could go from point A to point B, that's going to be the most appealing um, sample you lead with, if, let's say for a query letter. So a one that involves a lot of heavy lifting on the, on the business front could be a turnoff. So mm. I wouldn't start with that. That may be something that once you pull in the manager and they're on board and working with you, you could say, have a kind of a tricky thing going on. Let's try to navigate it. Right. But I wouldn't navigate. I wouldn't still, let's start with something that's like really hard to pull off like mm-hmm. it's like do something because the the clearest they see business is that's what's going to be a motivator for somebody to go oh my god the script's great i know exactly who will want to make it mm-hmm. yeah no and i think also you run there's the legality of it meaning if you've written something that's not again a shakespeare thing adapted into or you know like taming of the shrew to uh what is it how to win a guy in 10 days or something like that. You know what I mean? You, if you completely adapt, you just take the themes or the basic story, but it rearrange it and completely and you turn it into something and it's, it's public domain or whatever it happens to be. That's different versus like you wrote the episode 10, like the continuation of the star Wars trilogy of trilogies uh, because they don't want to get sued. What if they have something in development? That's just like that. They're not going to read it for legal reasons, but if you have something else that's sci-fi, that's very cool, 
and you get a meeting with Kathleen Kennedy and say, hey, I've got an idea for this, you could pitch it. Same reason, same thing for a show. If you're pitching to, a, if you're submitting to a showrunner, don't send an episode of that show because they won't read it because they don't want to get sued in case they have something going on just like that. Send something that's similar in tone that they could read. And then if you happen to get a meeting with the showrunner or get into the room or whatever, pitch your ideas. But nobody doing IP, writing a script for that's pre-existing IP is, 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 is difficult to sell because a lot of times they can't read it or they won't read it. Um, anyway, uh, let's see here. Uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. Scrappy Coco, what do you think are the fundamentals of a cool working relationship between a manager and a client? I think that, you know, every manager has their own personal approach. I mm -hmm. could say what I like to do. Right. I like to, um, look at concepts that are interesting to the right. writer and we talk about which ones we should prioritize. Mm -hmm. And then before jumping into it, I typically like to like do like a one page that doesn't talk about character or plot that talks about the experience of it. So what it is and what it's not in a way to uh, set a compass and go, what are we prioritizing? Like what is the, the energy of, this thing is it mm -hmm. super fast pace is it slow burn is it tonal is it very arty like what what is like winning look like and this could always change but it's like this mission statement or it's like a it's a mission statement it's a recommendation to something that doesn't exist yet and i do that with producers i just brought a producer onto um, a script a studio producer mm -hmm. and we created just like a um a one page like what is our mission statement what are we trying to do as we develop a pitch like what is this thing what is the budget of it what kind of filmmakers we like what kind of actors so it's the creative it's logistical is this for a financier is this a studio like what are we what does this thing look like like where where do we want to be mm -hmm. start there and that's why i do that so it's a concept kind of like that mission statement that recommendation of the experience of what it is and where it could be then jump in to start developing it mm -hmm. um, i do that i like that I, I like to know what i'm working with mm -hmm. sometimes it's challenging if you don't know what you're working with and you just get things because the problem is it's great to have like something that's interesting, you know, whatever, but you also have to think who's going to make it like, what is the budget of it? What is this? Like, what are people looking for right now? And it's good to at least be able to like, think about that. So for me, I like to have those early conversations with a client mm -hmm. and that's how I typically work. Uh, I like to, I like to do that. And then on the pitching level, I like to practice pitching with a client, just rolling through pitches and then having the client pitch their friends and family. Like I like to really refine, not just writing, but the verbal side of it. Right. Right. Uh, so we are near the end of our time here. Uh, I wanted to give you the last word. So uh, uh, guest choice, what is the last topic that we're going to talk about today? Okay, I have a, a video game recommendation oh, uh, called uh, Obra Din. It's could, like you, this, could you spell that Obra Din? Yeah, I um, I forgot how to spell, it, but I'll I'll pull it up right now. I, okay. I don't want to misspell it because when people play it, it's basically like a um. All right, I got it. So mm -hmm. it's called Obra Din. O B R A, and then mm -hmm. the last word's Din. D I N N. Mm -hmm. And it's a um, murder mystery on a boat. 
and you have a character who's like this insurance investigator, like everybody died on this boat and Hmm. you have to figure out how they died. And it's super grisly and (laughs) fucked up. Like it's great. Um, And the whole game, you're just revealing the story, but you're getting the story through the murders Hmm. and these accidents and all these wild deaths. So as you go on your, on your journey at the end of it, you'll get to know what happened. And has like this really cool, like lo-fi computer kind of graphics, mm-hmm. very simplistic, but also really beautiful. And you could do this bullet time and just kind of like move the camera around these uh, crazy ways characters die. Like if someone gets stabbed through the head with a spear and then you mm. can kind of move around the kind of like the crime scene. Um, but the game's brilliant. And uh, it was designed by this guy, Lucas Pope. And like, he did an amazing job, like the voice acting and it's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like very like artisanal. You feel like it was really made by right. uh, one person's vision. Well, that goes a lot to what you were saying earlier, what we were talking about in terms of it's really about the taste, about the perspective of the, the POV of the, do they have a clear vision? Do they have uh, great storytelling ability? It's not about the lighting, i.e. the high definition graphics. It's really about their way into this world. Are they telling you a story? How they're telling you a story? Do they have a clear cut vision of what they're trying to do and bringing the audience in rather than, oh, this is super high you know, uh, old 4K graphics and, you know, has a team of designers and this and that, but it's just a basic game that, you know, you've played a million times before, right? I agree. Yeah, this is a game that shows you that it's not about just throwing money at the wall. It's Mm -hmm. about playing a game that's super personal. Like everything is designed through the mind of this person who's been living. I think it it took this uh, designer four years to make it. Wow. One, one person yeah. working with a small team. So I think this game is kind of what I look at with what I want from a, from a client. Mm. I want them to do this. I want them to make me feel something that I'm like, I haven't seen this done in this way. Right. So that's kind of like the innovative qualities of this, you know, this experience. So yeah, I, I think that's definitely a game that I recommend to play mm-hmm. for those reasons, but it just kind of illustrates my taste. Yeah. No, that's cool. So everyone check out Obra Din. I'm going to check it out. That's for sure. Um, and people need to follow you on the Twitters uh, and your socials. So can you just throw those out for us real quick? Oh, yeah. So I know it's at Peter Katz one on Twitter. Please. So I'm a I think uh, the best place to find me is on mm. uh, Twitter at mm. Peter Katz one. Uh, I, uh, I post uh, random things on there that are like uh random as a dad so not always screenwriting so you might see a baby with a hat that has nothing <laughs> to do with screenwriting but it's there and then you could also for just purely uh the story driven things you could go to uh my uh story driven account um for just that so those are the areas that um if you if you want to see what's up you could follow me there and you could also too like for my personal one if you ever want to like tweet me like like a question if there's anything you want to like talk mm-hmm. about like that's not like hey i got 20 scripts for you to read right now but if right. you're like hey what are your thoughts on this i'm happy to chat on there you know mm-hmm. to me that's that's not a problem at all cool yeah just don't do the whole 20 tweet tweet chain of each one of the different log line or something yeah like no that. i don't i don't think that will work because <laughs> yeah. to me i'm just like i just love talking about the process and the storytelling mm-hmm. so yeah i mean that's something that 
I'd be totally open if someone's like, Hey, what do you think about this IP thing or whatever? That's good. But if it's very project specific, like I need you to read this, then I'll probably like on Twitter, I'd be like, like I just ignore it. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you do want to get at me with like a a query letter, just like one log line and a short bio is all I need. It doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. I've had people send me like animations and things and like all sorts of stuff um, that has nothing to do with like a simple query letter. Simple, simple is better. Yeah, absolutely. We hear that a lot. Um, Scrappy Coco says ending thing for me, but between John recommending John Zazerny recommending Mr. In Between and Peter rec- recommending the return of uh, uh, Oberdin, we've gotten the coolest recommendations, which I agree because that's we've gotten some very cool recommendations. Um, so thank you for coming on, Peter. I appreciate it. Uh, as always, we'll have to have you back on. We didn't talk enough about story. I definitely want to get into that, but you got so many questions. So um, we're off next weekend. So we're not going to be on next Saturday because of the 4th of July holiday, but we are doing a special Wednesday episode this coming Wednesday to replace that. So not Saturday, but this coming Wednesday, we've got uh, showrunner uh, and former stand-up comic, Mike Royce. So we'll be talking a lot about comedy and TV. Uh, Mike Royce was worked on Everyone Loves Raymond or Everybody Loves Raymond. Is it everybody or everyone? Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, and uh, one day at a time for Netflix. So come check that out. That's 3 p.m. this Wednesday, the 29th. So if you are interested in our next one, it's not Saturday, next Saturday, but uh, this coming Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time. Thank you again, Peter. It's been a pleasure. You've done a great job explaining so many different things, uh, especially IP, which we didn't, we haven't covered that much. So that's, it's been fantastic. Um, so we'll have to have you back on again. Very well, soon. thanks for having me. I love being on the show. You got, you're so much fun. It's a great audience. It's great answering your questions. So appreciate you. Appreciate the listeners. And uh, you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. You too. Everybody enjoy your weekend. Thank you for joining us today. We will Hi. see you next time. Bye. Bye.